Good evening, friends. Welcome to another edition of Valley Writers Read, where, as you probably know, all the folks who read their stories on the air are, or have been, 100% Valley residents. This is your program host, Franz Weinschenk, delighted to introduce tonight's author, Thomas Nance, who happens to be a Kingsburg native. He's going to read us a story he's written entitled, Dad's Address Book. It's all about his own G.I. father's experiences during World War II when he fought in the Pacific. Here he is, Thomas Nance reading Dad's Address Book. Dad's Address Book. On August 15, 1945, I'm sure my father didn't look at his address book because he was too busy celebrating with whatever alcohol that he and his buddies would get a hold of after the Japanese unconditional surrender and the end of all hostilities for World War II. On that day, he did take a short break and got out pencil and paper and drew a cartoon of a heavily bearded G.I., with an unstrapped helmet. With the G.I.'s eyes closed and his mouth wide open, he held up the two-fingered victory sign. My father had drawn a Japanese flag torn in two beneath the G.I. The rest of the note read, The war is over. I'm too happy to write. Love, George. This first note after the war ended was sent to his parents, who after two and a half years had worried about and read letters from and wrote letters to their youngest boy, my father, George Holden Nance, Jr. My father died September 18, 2008. Two years after that, my mother gave me a large shopping bag filled with letters and memorabilia my father and his parents had kept from his time in the war. I've read and scanned over 160 of these letters with more to read. Almost hidden among the letters was my father's address book, that he carried around from battle to battle in the Southwest Pacific. With the advent of PDAs, the days of having a physical address book are rapidly coming to an end for those in the digital society. But for my father and many of his generation, the address book became a lifeline to a world where no matter how flawed it appeared to those living there, it was heaven on earth for those so far away. There was nothing fancy about the address book, three by two inches with tabs for each letter of the alphabet. Although I'm sure it never was far from my father's side, he had written on the first page, Property of George Nance, as if these words alone would assure the book would never get lost. My father had neatly listed over a hundred names. Some were quickly recorded at the war's end before his buddies returned home, but most addresses were there for the duration. It was those addresses and those people's letters that made all those hard times easier for my father to live through. One of the first new addresses in his book would have to have been Betty McClement, the daughter of Dolly McClement, or Aunt Dolly, as my father and many of his friends called her. Dolly and her husband were Australians who had no sons to send off to war, but they had a home with their two daughters about the age of most of the younger G.I.s. They had dinners and dances and parties for the boys. 
they knew would soon be leaving to stop the Japanese from invading Australia. The McClements had a piano on which whoever could play accompanied the boys singing and laughing through the popular songs of the day. And then, when the boys left, the McClements sent them all letter after letter, telling of the most mundane news and wishing that these young men might have another safe day away from harm and be a day closer to being sent home. My father and Aunt Dolly would continue to send Christmas letters to one another until her death in the late 1960s. Of course, Dad had to include addresses for his brother and sister. Dad was the baby in the family. He was 12 years younger than his brother Roy and 10 years younger than his sister Jane. Both siblings were married and had children. Although I have yet to find a letter written by my Uncle Roy or his wife, my Aunt Annelle, I did come across a letter my Aunt Jane wrote to Dad on August 27, 1945. Because of the mail, the family hadn't heard from Dad since August 5th. Everyone at home believed Dad would be on his way to Japan, and better yet, that he would be coming home, maybe, just maybe, for Christmas. Aunt Jane was in Tucson at the time and said that when VJ was announced, everyone went wild. She was alone at the time and, as she said, couldn't keep from crying. Yet later on that same day, she too joined the celebration and kept thinking about her little brother running around the camp. The rest of the letter was filled with that mundane news that kept Dad's spirits alive. His nephew, Bobby, who Dad had only seen in pictures, had celebrated VJ Day by learning to ride his bicycle. Bobby would ride around making siren noises and calling out, Hot truck! Even though I haven't found a letter from my Uncle Roy or Antonelle, I know about them because of my father mentioning getting letters from them and his letters home to his mother and father. I know about my cousin Mary Jane getting her first bike and how Dad knew how exciting that was because he remembered how happy he was to get his first bike. He wrote about how worried he was that Mary Jane or Dickie might get the smallpox, which was going around at the time. Hearing about Mary Jane taking piano lessons, Dad expected his brother Roy to play a lot of boogie-woogie upon Dad's return. It made Dad smile to find out Dickie had Joanne Hickman as a teacher because Dad had known Joanne from college and was relieved to know she was recovering after the death of John Phillips, whom she had been very serious about. And the grandest of all treats were those letters written by seven-year-old Mary Jane herself. Whenever Dad received one, he made sure to write back that very day. Some of the addresses were of guys in his unit, Jim Nash from Johnson City, Illinois, was one of them. Since Nash and Nance were so close to each other alphabetically, whenever there was a duty assignment, Jim and my dad usually were chosen for the same details. One time, Dad was chosen for support work on a truck delivering supplies, but since Dad had KP duty, Nash, being next in line, took Dad's place. Sure enough, the truck hit a mine and Nash's leg was shattered and he got a homer. At the time, Dad muttered about how that shattered leg should have been his and how he should have been the one going home. Since my father got out of the war in one piece, even if terribly underweight from malaria, he might have thought differently about Jim's good luck when he read Jim's letter from Winter General Hospital 
Ward C-14, Topeka, Kansas. Jim appeared to be in good spirits. He called my dad an old cobber, the slang word for friend each had picked up in Australia. Jim was living the good life, as he called it, even if he was in dry Kansas, where one was lucky to find 3.2 beer. Of course, if there was enough money, there was always a way to find something better, so with $30, James had one of the ward boys deliver three quarts of Park and Tilford whiskey. Life was good with whiskey and pretty wax and nurses. The only problem was his leg was in a full cast, and he still had three more weeks to go before the cast would come off. That would make three and a half months in a cast. But Jim wasn't asking for pity in his letter. Instead, he said, I gather from the trend of Herb's conversation that you guys must have had a rough go after I left. Hope you guys get a break soon. Three and a half months in a full leg cast, and he was thinking how good his life was and how he missed all of his cobbers. Dad's best cobber was John Robert McGrory. McGrory, or McGrew as my father called him, came from Massachusetts, where he lived in South Weymouth near Boston. McGrew and Georgie, as McGrory called my dad, seemed to be opposites. McGrew was an East Coast boy, two years younger than Dad, and a good foot taller. McGrew would come back after the war with a terrible hatred of the Japanese, whose brutality he had seen firsthand. My father would always believe that the Japanese had been taught to be that way in the same way the American soldier had been taught to hate. But what both McGrew and Georgie had in common was finding something to laugh about, no matter how bad things got. When they last saw one another in January of 1946, when McGrew went back to the States while Dad finished out his assignment in Japan, I'm sure they had good intentions of staying in touch. But as the years went on and their families grew, they contacted one another less and less, until in 2001, my father was convinced that he would never be able to make contact with McGrew again. At the time, I'd been trying to show Dad once again how great the Internet was and how a computer might help him find out all sorts of information. You can even look up people's addresses, I told him. You can? Sure. Who uh, you want to find out about? Bob McGrory. I've been thinking about him a lot. So with a name and a city, I looked on the Internet and got back to Dad with a possible telephone number. He gave it a try, and on the first call, Georgie and McGrew were cobbers once again. By then, my father was bent over and unable to walk very far without a walker and really wasn't much on driving farther than a few miles to Costco for his daily pizza and mocha. So when McGrew suggested he and Dad meet in Dana Point, California, my dad asked me if I might drive. I asked if he would mind if I got some war stories out of him and McGrew. I was fortunate enough to spend some time with the two as they told me what they had remembered of their time together in the 41st Infantry Division, 163rd Regiment, 3rd Battalion, during World War II. I found that McGrew would meet up with Georgie when they both ended up on Biak Island in 1944. McGrew said, MacArthur said we were going into Biak to clean up. It was at Biak where the war began. On the first day Dad landed at Biak, he and the others marched across the former Japanese airstrip and came to huge cliffs that had to be scaled in order to find much of the hidden Japanese forces. 
Climbing the cliffs was difficult in full gear, but that's what had to be done. At the top of the cliffs were caves, which overlooked the airstrip. Everyone spent the night in the caves. The caves gave Dad a feeling of being very safe and secure. That evening, a Japanese plane came flying over the airstrip. Just what the pilot was thinking, no one but the pilot knew. But he was definitely in the wrong place at the wrong time. The U.S. boys opened up with 22 millimeters, followed by 40 millimeters, and anything else that they could shoot. The pilot was shot down and somehow survived and spent his first day as a prisoner of the American forces. Dad was intrigued by the whole experience. It's as if he wasn't even there, for he was completely out of harm's way, and he was just an observer. It was one of the few times during the war when he would be near battle and not have his heart racing. Planes weren't always so easily taken care of. McGrory got a laugh when he remembered a time later in the BIAC operation when Dad was taking a shower. A plane came overhead and everyone went for cover. Dad ended up in the mud. All he had wanted to do was get clean, but there he was, buck naked and covered in mud for no reason because the plane continued on its way. Dad didn't remember the incident, and even if it did happen, it was unlikely that it happened on Biak. Biak was mostly coral, and dynamite was used to make holes in the ground to set up the tents. Finding mud on Biak was difficult, if not impossible. But since Biak was an airstrip, there would have been plenty of airplanes taking off and landing. The airstrip was set up in such a way that in order to land, the pilots would have to go over high cliffs and then drop down to the airfield. Whenever a plane did fly overhead, all the soldiers would double-check to see if it was one of their own. After the first night in the caves, the GIs went through scrub growth and coral to the roads the Japanese had used. By the time they got to Ibdi Pocket, the terrain became all coral. But this area was where the Japanese were hiding, and the battle, or mop-up, began. During a part of the battle, Dad was having K-rations next to a dead soldier whose brother was one of those at the front only 25 feet away from where Dad was eating. Although Dad didn't know either of the boys' names, he realized that the living brother knew nothing of his brother's death. McGrew remembered Biak as being the worst of his war experiences. The 162nd had come in first to take away the Japanese airstrip, and the 163rd with McGrew and Dad continued the battle. There was yet another battle that neither my father nor McGrew understood at the time. During World War II, African-American soldiers were not allowed to integrate into compact duty, but they did have the difficult duty of carrying all the supplies of the 163rd up the side of the cliffs. McGrew said, The idea of dropping off the supplies and leaving the island sounded great to me. I don't think I would have minded that duty at all. The African-American soldiers who did stay on the island were used almost exclusively as truck drivers to move supplies. They would still have many more years before they would win their war for equality in the military. The problem with jungle warfare was that even if there hadn't been any enemy, there was still no baths, therefore a soldier had jungle rot around his neck, toes, and underarms. There was a purple ointment that gave some relief, but not much. A cut on the hand or anywhere else would take forever to heal. Most soldiers were almost always weak from a combination of diarrhea, dysentery, dengue fever, and malaria. 
It was little wonder that after the war my dad never wanted to camp out again for the rest of his life. There were more stories, but what impressed me more than the stories was how those two old cobblers, McGrew and Georgie, never had a silent moment together. It had been over 50 years since those two young men had grown up too quickly on Biak and other islands in the southwest Pacific. But they still laughed and teased one another, and neither really wanted the weekend to come to an end. But it did, and they went on with their lives. After my father died, my family lost contact with McGrew, as he didn't answer his emails or letters, and his phone number was disconnected. I can only guess that he has joined my father and most of the rest of the greatest generation. Still, I can laugh about McGrory as I read through a few of the letters he sent to my father after the war. In a letter dated April 4, 1946, McGrory wrote about a little bout that he'd had with malaria and how he was taking quinine and atrabine for it. He had nervous indigestion and his appendix was have to be taken out soon. But other than that, he was in great shape. He had included a picture of himself in a suit getting into his 1935 Plymouth, which he claimed had a great motor. And better yet, things were going well with his girlfriend, Jean, to whom he had given a friendship ring on her birthday. He was going to finish up his high school requirements with just a few more classes, and Jean was coming by to help him study, to which he added, Hubba Hubba. The war was still in his memory, for he had three scrapbooks full of war memories completed. And even though he didn't have a full-time job yet, he and Gene had been to dances in Boston and had danced to the Glenn Miller Orchestra and Tommy Dorsey. The letter was signed, Yurk Haber, John R. And the next letter I found of his, dated January 16, 1947, he was excited about having a new job as assistant manager of the Art Theater in Quincy, Massachusetts. The hours were horrible, 11.30 in the morning until 11 at night, with two hours off for meals six days a week. Still, he liked the work and the responsibility of having 10 people working under him. By then, the 35 Plymouth with the great motor had died and was replaced with the 37 Dodge. He was still seeing Gene, whom he would eventually marry. He signed his letter, Your Pal Bob maybe in an attempt to change the boy at war into another man in civilian life. The humor wouldn't change. He had found a small article in one of the local papers, clipped it out, and asked Dad if he knew anything about it. The article read, The housing situation in Fresno, California, as reflected by this classified ad in that city's evening B. Quote, Half-wet vet, three dogs, four cats, a chronic alcoholic, Wife and a small monster on the way desire a small apartment to practice homework. Master at FSC house wrecking intends to take up drums. End quote. Well, they say it pays to advertise, but we wonder did this vet get any replies? McGrew and my father shared many memories and more than once wondered if they would make it through another day. There were many GIs who experienced greater hardships than the two Cobbers. McGrew and Georgie, but there were many others in the war who had no grand stories to share. One of those who wondered what he would talk about after the war was over was Russell Neeson, who had become friends with my father during BASIC and had gone on to the Air Corps. 
In a letter written in England on July 17, 1945, Russell writes, Yes, George, you had it a little different from the Air Corps. I suppose you boys call the Air Corps characters glamour boys, and I don't blame you. We live in Neeson huts over here. Not good, but the boys bitch. But they're not foxholes. We only have hot water for showers a few hours a week, and the boys bitch. But it's still a shower. We only have English women to fraternize with, and the boys bitch, but at least there are women. You see what I mean, George? You can't understand the whole situation unless you've seen both sides of it. I don't claim to have seen all of both sides of it, but I've seen all of one side of it and at least some of the other. So I think I can understand the situation better than most of the boys when they're told they've never had it so good. I've come to the conclusion, George, that no matter what part of the army a guy's in, he'll always think there is a better part. In a way, though, I envy you, George. What have I done that I'll be able to tell my kids about? Not a damn thing. Sure, I've flown in the big ones. I've got a thousand hours in the air. I know a B-17 like my own house. But all of that led up to my terrific combat experience of exactly two missions, during which I never even saw flack. Not a very good story for the inevitable question to come in the later years. What did you do during the war? Guess I've only one consolation, and that's to be found in the education I've received, and God knows I hope that will be of some value. When I read Russell's observations, I couldn't help but remember that when asked about what happened during the war, my father for years seemed to say that nothing happened. Yet in the back of the bedroom closet was what we kids called the war stuff. My father's uniform and his duffel bag were there along with odds and ends such as an old Zippo lighter and even a few cool cigarettes. In another closet, there was a sword with a curved blade inside of a bamboo sheath. We were told this was a headhunter's sword. Oh, the things we imagined. And the treasure of them all was a rifle my father had brought home. It was packed in grease, and there were even bullets in a leather case. No one ever tried any of the bullets to see if they would fit, so obviously we never fired the rifle. By the time I had some idea of what World War II was like, thanks to movies and television, I asked my father about the war. But he didn't seem interested, so after a while, I gave up asking. It wouldn't be until my father was over 70 that he actually began to tell us about the war and what it was like for him. Now I wonder what Russell said when he was asked, what did you do during the war? Another name included within the address book was Nina Marie Burns. Since my father wasn't around for me to ask about her as I read her letters to my dad, I don't know much except what I can figure out from the few letters that my father saved. I know she was first a friend of Russell's, and I can guess from what Russell wrote in his letters that he wouldn't have minded being more than just friends with her. What happened to their friendship, I don't have enough letters to know. What I do know is this. She took the time to write letters to my father and other military men during a time when letters were often the only good thing to come out of their lives. There was a fine line that Nina and all those single women made in their correspondence to the boys overseas. They had to keep the boys' spirits alive, but not cross the line and promise too much. On all the letters I found from Nina, she wrote her name in the return address as Miss Nina Burns. Miss, 
has fallen out of favor as a personal title. But during that war, Miss was a title that meant home to many a G.I., as he found time to write to one of his girls or, if he felt blessed, his girl exclusively. Exactly how much my father cared for Nina, I'll never know. But he had two addresses for her, which meant he kept up correspondence even when she moved. At the back of his address book, my father kept a list of birthdays. All of the birthdays, except one, were family members. The one exception was Nina's, July 10th. I was able to figure out another story with Nina through numerous letters my father had sent home. He had collected, as I imagine some of his buddies also had, shells from the different islands in which they'd landed. He then sent the shells home to his mother, who took them to a jeweler who made them into bracelets. According to the letters, Dad had three made, one for Nina, one for Barbara Howard, and one for his niece, Mary Jane. The bracelets were made and sent off sometime in early 1945. Nina wrote to my grandmother thanking her for sending the bracelets and saying what a great guy Dad was. In a letter home, Dad said that Nina seemed to be a great gal as well. In the few letters I do have of Nina's, she seems at some moments to be flighty and at other moments baffled by the world around her. In one letter written after the Japanese surrender, she wrote, She liked to go to church so she could teach the little children. The Chicago weather was typical November with one moment cold and the next almost warm. Dad had sent some cartoons he had drawn. Nina liked them and wondered if Dad would take up art when he got back to school. Then, as with most people, she complained that she was working too much and not having enough fun. Since it was homecoming at her former high school, she could hear the core playing. She would have loved to have gotten out her fife and heard Russell again on the drums. Oh, those were the good old days, Nina complained. Those were the days when she wanted to be 20. Now that she was 20, she thought, Enjoy it now, to heck with wishing, laugh, be merry, for tomorrow we die. In the same letter, she included a picture of herself and hoped it wouldn't ruin their friendship. But she flirted nevertheless when she wrote, I'm not as gorgeous as you. In another letter written in January of 1946, she welcomed Dad back home. Nina marveled at the fact that Dad was able to get from Japan to Seattle in just eight and a half days. Then she apologized for her Irish temper. She had forgiven Russ for his misunderstanding of her friendship with another G.I. in Japan. She said that the other relationship was far from serious business. It taint serious until the ring is on the finger. Straight dope. She hoped Dad would come to Chicago to visit. She realized that soldiers needed time to adjust. But she warned him not to come in the winter. She was cold all the time. That day, it was officially zero outside. The returning soldiers were everywhere by then, even in Nina's cozy quadplex. One G.I. had moved in with his parents, wife, and a baby next door to Nina, and played the trumpet from seven in the morning until midnight. It seems as if he puts the trumpet right against the wall. The last letter I could find from Nina was dated March 19, 1946. She typed, I'm still waiting for a reply from my note, but I guess I'm waiting in vain. Still, she told of having her new job with a raise in pay. 
It was another company which made switches, but this one had more girls. She was the only woman at the other place where she had worked, and one can imagine how difficult that must have been in 1946. She finished the short note by calling Dad Cobber and hoping that he wasn't ill. Then she added a handwritten note, and this became one of the saddest notes I read. Dear George, I'm sure I didn't say all the things I had in mind when I typed that little ditty, but I do wish you would drop me a line. I miss your letters a great deal, and I'm wondering how you are taking civilian life. Have you seen a lot of your old friends? Have you been to any parties, dances, and stuff? Do you plan on going to school or working or just resting? No doubt I've bored you by all this idle chatter, but having free time and nothing better to do but practice typing and scribbling a note, I picked you as my victim to do my scribbling too. Again, I plead with you on bended knees, how about a letter? Remember our three or two or whatever it was, year friendship? The Alamo, the Pearl Harbor, me? Come across. As always, Nina. What happened, I'll never know. But since my father kept the letters in Nina's picture, their correspondence must have been important for a while. I can only hope Nina, along with all the other people in my father's address book, had as good a life as my father did. That address book is filled with memories. My father's memories and the memories of all those people listed. Most, if not all, of the people are dead. It may be that for some of these people, the only memory left is my father's handwritten record of their address over 70 years ago. I know those addresses were precious to my father, for each of them was a contact with the world as he wanted it to be, a world filled with friends who thought about you enough to spend precious moments out of their lives to think only of you as they touched pen or pencil to paper and told you the most mundane stories that made life worth living. With my smartphone, I can call all the people in my contacts or send them text messages, write them emails, or like a comment on their Facebook page. No matter how I contact them, I doubt if I can ever duplicate that amazing feeling my father got when a new letter from the States was in his hands and he opened it up and unfolded the paper to read about all the wonderful reasons he had for being alive. Even when no new letters arrived, there was always the old letters to reread or bring out the address book and sit down and write a letter to a cobber at home. Thomas Nance reading a story entitled Dad's Address Book about his father's World War II experiences as a soldier fighting the enemy in the South Pacific. 
Thomas discovered most of the stories by closely examining his dad's address book and rediscovering many of the letters which his father had written during his several years in the infantry as they left Australia and pursued the enemy from island to island under the leadership of General Douglas MacArthur. Friends, our writer-reader tonight, Thomas Nance, is a retired English teacher who taught at a Rossi High School for 35 years. He retired in 2011. He's a graduate of Fresno State, where he studied, among others, under Philip Levine. Some of his works have been published in the Fresno Bee, along with such magazines as Amelia, The Small Pond, Backwash, and Spectrum. We certainly thank Thomas for the fine story he read for us tonight and hope that he sends us more of his work in seasons to come. And so we come to the close of another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to listen to tonight's or any other Valley Writers Read story again, just get online at kvpr.org and click on to Valley Writers Read. Next week, our writer-reader will be James Varner. In the meantime, this is your host, Franz Weinschenk, wishing you and yours a great life story until we meet again. Good night. Valley Writers Read is a production of Valley Public Radio produced by Don Weaver and Franz Weinschenk. Please join us again next Wednesday at 7 p.m. for another edition of Valley Writers Read. Thank you.